Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are just, I've decided we're just going to start Chapter 6 now of the podcast on lambda encodings. We have been talking a lot about, I mean, we were just finishing Chapter 5 talking about uh, Curry-style versus Church-style typing, also sometimes called extrinsic for Curry-style and intrinsic for Church-style, and we uh, we talked about realizability a little bit. It's apparently a, a deep topic, and I have I have to say I have <laughs> I'm using it, but I don't think I'm using it at its full depth because there's a cha- chapter in the handbook of proof theory by Anna Trollstra on realizability, and it you know goes on and on and covers a bunch of different stuff that I, <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you is not um, in my currently in my uh, wheelhouse, is that what they say? Uh, anyhow, but the basic idea of realizability that, that, as I use it, is that we can think of formulas as describing sort of the observable behavior of programs. Sort of a, That's sort of an extensional property rather than the form of the program. That's an intentional property. And so... Uh, just right there, we already see an interesting point of type theory that comes up is this distinction between intentional and extensional quality. Well, realizability is already starting from an extensional perspective because, and boy, this sounds like I'm still in chapter five, but <laughs> let me see if I move off of this quickly. But, you know, the basic thing is that we're, when you say I've got a bool to bool function, all you're saying is if you call this thing with a bool, it's going to compute for a while and give you back a bool. Let's say we're in a normalizing setting, in a strong functional programming setting, where we know it's going to terminate. So having a bool-to-bool function says if you call the thing with a bool, then it's going to run for a while and eventually terminate with a bool. And but you see, what's interesting about this is it makes no mention of the insane stuff that this function might decide it wants to do in the court between receiving a, a nice, you know, beautifully typed Boolean input and producing a nice, beautifully typed Boolean output. In the middle, it could do unrestricted mayhem, completely untypable nonsense uh, to cough up that bool. Okay, so <laughs> that's a big difference. You know, in an intentional, intrinsic sort of type theory, that's, you know, no, 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 that's totally not allowed. When you have a bool-to-bool function, it's bool, the intrinsic an intrinsic typing discipline is telling you something about the actual form of the code for the function if it has type bool to bool. The function can only be doing certain things. It can't do just unrestricted anything. And, you know, that that certainly sounds pretty reasonable, but it's actually, I think, more powerful to just say, I don't care what you do, as long as you cough up a bool at the end, then we're fine. Because really, bool to bool, that's just that's the contract. That's the specification. I call you with a bool. Do whatever it takes to give me a bool back. It's up to you. I don't care. I just want a bool as an, as a result. Okay, so that's a yeah, big difference between intentional and extensional, right there. And that kind of comes, I think, comes. We see that coming in from uh, from realizability. And you know, that, uh, sort of a premise of that is that you need to. You're starting with untyped terms you know you can you can certainly define notions of realizability for typed terms intrinsically typed terms but i mean to me this is yucky <laughs> in gerard's proofs and types uh that's what's done in proofs and types 
Uh, if you're looking for resources to learn more about this sort of thing, Proofs and Types, which is available as a PDF online, just Google Proofs, Proofs and Types Girard, G-I-R-A-R-D. And there's also Taylor and LaFont are also co-authors of the book who apparently helped get Girard's notes into the nice form that they are in Proofs and Types. It's a great book. And um, I learned a ton about this sort of thing from it. I found the, the way it was presented um, very light and easy to deal with. All those positive things being said, looking back now as having gained some degree of expertise in the topic, uh, I really don't like the intrinsic. You know, so he, they do a sort of realizability semantics to show normalization of System F, which is Girard's, um, one of Girard's many um, super amazing great results from the 70s. And... Um, uh, they use intrinsically typed terms uh, for this realizable semantics, which to me is is um, you know not not the way I would want to do it, but but it certainly can be done. Anyhow, so all right, let's see if we manage to be done with chapter five just now, and to start chapter six, which is going to be on lambda encodings. So uh, lambda encodings, the basic idea is to not have data. Just functions only. And so to represent the data that we need as functions. And if you haven't heard of this, it may seem kind of crazy. Like, how could you possibly do that? Well, it sort of comes down to saying, when I have a piece of data, how do I, I mean, in my programming language, you know, anything I have, this sort of, a, you know, any artifact or object or whatever within the language its behavior, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, to sort of say what it is, uh, you know, I kind of need to say just what I can do with it, right? So if I have a number, let's say, um, let's say I have a built-in, you know, 64-bit machine integer, what can I do with that? I could do machine arithmetic, arithmetic operations on it, for example. That would be fine. Um, you know, I could... Sure, I could see what its bits are. I could print those bits out or something. I mean, there's a lot of things I could do with it, but in a sense, the, I guess another way to think of lambda coatings is instead of thinking of the data as somehow a thing, like a, you know, like a block of wood or like a bird or a, a brick or something, um, think of the data as something you want to have an interaction with. You know, for example, for number, you, you want to ask the number, hey, are you zero or not? Let's say we're working with natural numbers. Are you zero or not? The number will say, yes, I am zero, or nope, I'm not zero. And if you're not zero, then, oh, I know, since you're a natural number, um, let's assume for a moment that I do know that you're a natural number, either zero or successor of another natural number. Um, I can... Uh, I could say, okay, well, if you're not zero, then you must be successor of something. So please give me the predecessor number that you have. You know, so that's a perfectly sensible interface for the number. As you can sort of query it, ask it if it's zero or not. If it's not zero, you can ask it what its predecessor is. Um, and you know, that that would be a basic. If you had a form of recursion, then sort of on top of this, uh, you could write recursive functions like addition and whatever you just. You know, you're basically dividing your code into step cases and base cases. You know, you ask the number, say you want to do, um, I don't know, say you want to do addition. So you ask, you have two numbers, X and Y, you ask X, are you zero? If X says, yes, I'm zero, then you return Y. And if X says, no, I'm not zero, then you say, all right, well, 
please give me your predecessor number because I'm going to recursively add that number to Y and I'll take the successor of what I get from that recursive call. So if you had a facility for recursion in your language, um, and certainly in untyped lambda calculus you do, you could just use um, any of the sort of like fixed point combinators that exist. I mean, if, we, if you're not familiar with that and we didn't talk about that, basically untyped lambda calculus is, is a Turing complete programming language. And so you can, within the language, um, define operators for writing recursive functions. Uh, and so, um, so just having the ability to ask numbers whether they're zero or not and get their predecessors or if they're not, if you had a facility for recursion, that would be sufficient to let you program with, num with numbers, like natural numbers, and write all the sort of arithmetic operations you might want to write. Uh, and you might say, but Aaron, <laughs> I don't want to write arithmetic operations on numbers. I want to write, first of all, not interested in that kind of program. Second of all, if I stopped to think about it, I would say uh, that would surely be a terrible idea because for efficiency, you, 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 I couldn't possibly do numeric computation that way, right? I want to take advantage of actual machine integers and machine uh, arithmetic operations. I wouldn't want to be implementing them myself, certainly not with unary <laughs> with piano natural numbers, right? Successor of successor of successor of zero is four, or however many successors I said there. Uh, and that's, you know, an exponentially inefficient encoding compared to encoding your numbers in binary or, or any positional notation, decimal, if you want. Sex, what is the one for base 60 if you're Babylonian? Whatever it is. Uh, so, um, Yes, no, no. Yeah, you don't want to use lambda encodings of natural numbers for numeric computation. I'll come, I'll come out right there and say it. Uh, bold statement being, you know, the social media lights up. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that obviously would be a terribly dumb idea because you would be so inefficient. You'd be exponentially inefficient, and then you'd have all these constant time inefficiencies on top of that because the hardware is much faster than the software for that kind of operation. So... Well, so in any serious story about lambda encodings, you, we have to acknowledge right off the bat that we probably still do want some scalar data types for, for efficiency reasons, for things like um, numbers. But for data structures where we don't have built-in hardware supports for lists uh, in the same way that we do for numbers, at least not, wasn't there like a Lisp machine long ago that tried to, to give special support for this sort of thing? Well, anyhow... Nowadays, we just do data structures like lists and trees and whatever in software. And so for that, functional encoding uh, is, is actually perfectly sensible. Um, so anyway, I'm almost my destination. So just to summarize here at the start of chapter six. So what is a lambda encoding? It's some way. So what I, I, could, I guess I could add a little detail here. What is a lambda encoding? A lambda encoding is some way, and there may be, and in fact are, many different ways to represent data as functions. And um, that's what a lambda encoding is. And we're going to talk about a bunch of different lambda encodings now in this chapter. Uh, so that's what it is. And I guess the uh, other thing I'll say as I look for a parking place is um, that's what it is. And we might say, well, why would anyone care about lambda encodings? Why would anyone care about the fact that I could represent data as functions? And, well, the inventor of lambda codings, Alonzo Church, not coincidentally, also the inventor of the lambda calculus, he was interested because he wanted a foundation for mathematics based on lambda calculus. And so 
He didn't want to have a built-in notion of number. Um, he didn't want to have a built-in notion of number. He wanted to have numbers be encodable as lambda terms, and he was he achieved that with help from Stephen Cole Cleaning, his doctoral student. So, uh, so that was one motivation. Was you know he just he wanted everything to be lambda. So then he needs to lambda encode his data. In his case, his data are numbers because he's a mathematician. Um, there are other motivations for wanting to have lambda encodings, and my motivation has uh, always been that. Um, well, my, I guess I should say my original motivation was to try to have a really compact core type theory so that we didn't need to have some kind of system of data types because we're not talking about just having numbers, right? We're talking about having user-defined data types that we have in functional programming. Uh, adding systems like that to, to a type theory um, is really complicated. I'll, I'll have more to say about why I think that is, is, a, is a mistake and a bad idea, even though that is kind of the state of the art. Um, outside of uh, Sedil headquarters here. That is kind of what other type theories do, is they have a, a special system for letting the user define in data types and write recursive functions over them. There's some serious problems with that, <laughs> which I will discuss. Um, and I, didn't I do not want that. But in fact, I've subsequently discovered that there's more benefits to lambda encodings than just like, giving yourself a small compact core so that you can explore um, the expressiveness of the programs you can write over the data in a way that I think you kind of can't if you have built-in data types. Anyway, so it, it's a for me personally, it's a big topic. We've been working on this here at Iowa for the past four years, and so we have thought a lot about it and have some things to share with you about it. So thank you for listening. <laughs>